Welcome to Granite State Matters, the busy person's way to catch up with what's happening in New Hampshire because extremists are taking over the state house, and what you don't know can hurt you. I'm Steve Marchand, and today we're going to talk about an issue that over the last few years has moved up towards the top, regardless of party or ideology or even geography, the top of most people's concerns, and that's housing. How much it costs to get it? Is there enough of it? What do we do about this growing and intensified problem? And when we were thinking about who to get for this show, two people immediately came to my mind, two folks I've had the pleasure of knowing for quite a while, seeing in civic life, um, and together, I think, are about as sophisticated a pair as we're going to find in New Hampshire to help us understand the nature of the supply and demand issues and what some folks are trying to do to address the problem. Uh, our two guests today, Brian Gottlob, he is the director of the Economic and Labor Market Information Bureau. That's a part of the New Hampshire Department of Employment Security. Brian, I've seen as an economist who knows New Hampshire and beyond as well as anybody I've seen in this state. It's really a pleasure to see you again, Brian. Thanks for being here. Great to be here, Steve. And truly, and in a legislature of 400 people, this really is a compliment. One of my favorite members of the legislature in the 20 years I've been following this stuff, Ivy Van is a legislator from Peterborough, but she's so much more. Um, there is not a better person on issues of expanding our housing stock, getting really practical in a nonpartisan or bipartisan way about it. And the reason she can get into the nitty gritty is because she's not just a legislator. Uh, she's a professional on this stuff. She understands town planning, urban design, as well as anybody. So, uh, Ivy, thank you so much for being here today. Well, as we all know, there's nothing I'd rather talk about than housing and how to get more of it. Well, Thanks for having me. That's why you're here. So I am going to start with Brian, though, because I want to sure. use his kind of economist's perspective to start at a higher level to give us the right context. So, look, I got a lot of friends who are spending a lot of time on Zillow, the, like it's the stock market, to see how much their house went up this week over the last several years. Uh amazing increases. If you own a home, it's like watching the stock market and the bull market. And if you're a renter, it is the most depressing exercise to try to get from renter to home ownership, or even just to move in New Hampshire at a price that you can afford. Supply problem, demand problem. Give us some insight here. What's going on in this unbelievable housing market of the last several years? The most fundamental problem with the housing market, and I look at it from the perspective of an economist, and we talk a lot about supply and demand, is the fact that we have an undersupply of housing in the state of New Hampshire. We've been undersupplying housing for really a couple of decades. If you look at the number of housing units that have been built, um, well below what we would expect given our population and job growth. So what we're doing is we're trying to pack more people into fewer houses. And when you do that, you're going to raise the price of housing. And over the last couple of years, we've seen housing prices, sales prices, go up 30% in the last couple of years. So really significant um, increase, putting a big burden, as you mentioned, on potential new home buyers. And that has a real significant effect 
on the rental market because what's happening is we're forcing more people into the rental market. People who would normally be exiting the rental market and moving into the home purchase market are staying in the rental market. And those people generally have higher incomes because they were thinking about purchasing houses. So we're compressing the rental market and we're not building enough rental units. And as a result, uh, the demand is driving up the prices significantly. That's not just true in New Hampshire, by the way, it's true nationally. So normally, whether we're talking about television sets or automobiles or any other number of goods or or services for that matter, you would see a natural response where there's Mm -hmm. tremendous demand and not enough supply. There would be a flooding of additional people entering the market to provide that supply. And yet it doesn't seem like it's quite working out that way. So what are some of the reasons why we're not seeing that otherwise predictable response. Well, I'm going to talk about some of the economic issues. I think Ivy's going to talk about some of the political and the zoning issues because it's really a complex problem. It's a problem that is multifaceted. From the economic perspective, um, there are a number of factors that I like to call are creating kind of the perfect storm of negative housing market. One, We have, over the last couple of years, seen dramatic price increases in the materials, uh, goods and materials that go into building housing. In addition, uh, we've had supply chain issues. So even if you're willing to pay uh, the high prices for the materials, um, you might not be able to get them. And then there's a supply shortage of people in order to build the houses. Um, So all of those things have contributed to difficulties, even if you're lucky enough, and I'm not going to talk as much about this as Ivy will, if you're lucky enough to have land, have permits, you still might be challenged in, in order to build housing. So um, it, it has really become a very difficult situation. Um, it's difficult for builders to build housing at the density they would like to make it more economical because one of the ways you reduce the cost of a unit of housing is to make or allow more houses, more housing units to be built on the same piece of land. And that's something that's proven to be very difficult in many communities. And boy, Ivy, if this is not in your wheelhouse, (laughs) I don't know what is. You've been a leader in the legislature. And again, this is one of those areas of bipartisanship. Unfortunately, it's also an area sometimes where there's bipartisanship that uh, will kill such a great idea like this. Ivy, talk about that. Okay, so uh, Brian's absolutely correct. It's a complicated problem, and it's a problem that we grew ourselves. Um, Brian talked about the last couple of decades, but really, across the United States, we've artificially depressed the production of housing for close to 75 years. Um, Starting about 1950, the federal lending policies, our highway policies, all of those things encouraged areas, instead of to growing up, encouraged them to grow out. And that was true in New Hampshire as well. Additionally, the real problem that we have that we're dealing with now is that places which are served by municipal water and sewer and existing streets were downzoned. And what that means is neighborhoods that had duplexes and triplexes and uh, quads and dignified small apartment buildings, all of those neighborhoods were downzoned to single family only. And uh, probably 75% of 
the area, land area available for housing in New Hampshire is zoned single family only. Or maybe you can build a duplex, but you have to have a lot that's twice as big. So what that means is neighborhoods are frozen in amber. And this is the first time in the history of people living in community that we have said to neighborhoods, whatever you've got on the ground right now, that's never changing. You're never going to get a fourplex next to you. You're never going to be able to divide your house. You're never going to be able to do anything except have single family houses there. And so that makes it really hard to put housing where people want to be. Um, when I proposed the fourplex bill, which is what I think Steve probably wants me to talk about, the fourplex bill said, uh, it was HB 1177 this past term, and what it said is, if you have a lot of record served by municipal water and sewer, you can build up to four units on it by right. And what that means is it's not a special exception. You don't have to make a trip to the Zoning Board of Adjustment. You don't have to make a case for a conditional use permit. You do a site review, you get your permits, and as long as you meet the requirements for coverage, lot coverage, parking, the height of the building, if your uh, jurisdiction has rules about the design of the building, you have to abide by all of those you can build four units. It came out of committee with bipartisan support. Uh, we had the votes in the House and it was tabled halfway through the day on the last of a three-day marathon session. I think people were impatient and crabby and hot. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that's what the fourplex bill would have done was make an effort to allow historically appropriate density in places where we have water and sewer. And only about 63% of New Hampshire's, uh, New Hampshire's jurisdictions have water and sewer. Um, and actually I might have that, that might be backwards. I'll have to look it up. It's either 63% don't or 63% do, but it's only just above half in any event. So there are lots of places where my bill wouldn't have helped, but there are a lot of places where it would have helped. Well, and one of the things that you're touching on there as well is it's the number of housing units that we need relative to demand. It's also some diversity of types of housing stock. Um, one of the things that I've heard, and I live on the seacoast, uh, is folks that were looking to downsize in the kind of home, say an empty nester. Mm -hmm. And they basically found that if they wanted to live anywhere close to, say, Greater Portsmouth or somewhere in that area, even before you got to the price range, which could be prohibitive, they would say, I e either had to, um, to buy a condo that was extremely high end because mm -hmm. that's how you could make the money after all the permitting and the land acquisition and so forth. Or I had to buy three acres of land in Rye or Northampton or Greenland or something in a house that was well over 3,000 square feet because those were the kind of homes that were getting built, you know, either old farmhouse types or McMansion-y type. And that wasn't what they, that's not even downsizing no. for them. And that was the choice. And that that's it. Over the last 50 years, we've made it really easy to build two kinds of housing. You can build a big fancy house on a big lot, 
or you can build a garden apartment with you know 75 units out by the highway we are not building the places that people love i mean you know we all go to portsmouth or you know we go to europe and we look at these towns and we think oh my gosh wouldn't it be great to live here and in the immortal words of my eldest daughter live stumble home from the bar distance um <laughs> <laughs> lily came in and uh, testified for my bill when it was up and that was one of the things she said she was a great speaker but yeah, everybody wants to live, or not everyone, but many people, people my age, people my kids' age, people older than me, they want to live where they can walk to buy a quart of milk or whether they can walk to the movies or whether they can, where they can walk to get a drink and walk home. And we have made it impossible to build those places. It's not rocket science. We know how to do it. Um, but we've made it impossible to do it. And we've made it impossible to add historically appropriate density in neighborhoods which are adjacent to the places where people want to live. You know, one, it, this is connected to so many other issues that come up in public policy and politics. For example, for as long as I've been around this stuff, you hear about the graying of New Hampshire. We need to get more young people to come to New Hampshire. We need to get more young people to stay in New Hampshire. And it is often done in a vacuum, that, that debate and yet this housing conversation, um, there was a, uh, Brian, There, you sent us a, a chart a little earlier today in preparation for the broadcast that I thought was really interesting. It basically was an X, Y axis. And on one axis it was, uh, and I'm perhaps oversimplifying it, the percentage of a community's housing stock that was a rental. And then on the other axis was the percentage of, of the population that I believe was 35 or younger. And uh, and then you could draw this line going from, uh, you know, going up and towards the right corner that perhaps said a lot of things about communities that were well equipped to welcome in relatively young people and others that pretty clearly were explicitly trying to zone out any such movement of people into the community. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, uh, Steve, that's a really interesting uh, relationship and one that I think that a lot of communities aren't really aware of. There aren't many communities um, that aren't somewhat concerned about the aging of their populations. I know that has been probably um, the most talked about large economic and public policy issue that we've talked about over the last couple of decades, how old New Hampshire is getting. But the fact is, is that New Hampshire is not monolithic. There are communities that are not aging rapidly, that are much younger than other communities, much younger than the state average. And when I take a look at some of the correlates, some of the factors that are influencing that, one of the things that really stood out is the fact that those communities that had and allowed um, Rental apartments had a higher percentage of rental apartments, generally were aging less rapidly, and had a higher percentage of younger individuals. Now, that makes perfect sense. We know particularly now that young people are uh, delaying home buying, partly because of the cost of, of housing. So they're not going to pick a community that has no rental opportunities. And I use in doing some of these talks to different development groups and communities who are concerned about the issue, I say, look, we've got examples around the state of places that are not aging the way we think all of New Hampshire is. My community, Dover, is one of them. Dover has built an awful lot of quality rental housing. It's not necessarily cheap, 
but it is quality. And what it has done is it has attracted a lot of younger demographic to the community, which has done a number of things. One, kept the, the median age from, from rising the way it has overall in New Hampshire, but it's also made the downtown much more viable, much more energetic, um, dynamic. And that's a key point, I think, is that, you know, that chart simplifies the relationship, add rental housing, and you're going to add young people. Well, it presents the opportunity to attract young mm. people. The other things, and Ivy mentioned this, is that young people want things to do. They want to be close to civic amenities, cultural amenities, social amenities. Young people like to be around a lot of other young people. So they like, you know, for whatever mating rituals they partake in. <laughs> we know that when we look around the state, in particular where we live in the seacoast area, the seacoast has been one of those areas that is for whatever reason, and I'm not even suggesting that they've done it with uh, a lot. Yeah, yeah, they haven't really, it wasn't foresight. It yeah. just happened. You know, I, I like to say, um, I, I don't want to name drop here, but one of the best economic developers in the state is Eric Chinberg. He goes in and yep. he, he rebuilds mill buildings in the downtown. They become magnets for individuals who contribute to the vibrancy of the downtown. It started in Newmarket completely transformed that community, um, moved to, to Dover. It's moving, I think, to Franklin and Summersworth. Summersworth yeah. So those are communities that are going to benefit. So it's, it's, a lot of it is providing the opportunity for young people to live in density, in, in proximity to the amenities that they value. But it is also, um, you know, the notion that you've got to, you've got to produce quality rental housing, because there are plenty of places where there is relatively cheaper housing, but offer none of those amenities. So I, I can think back to the Great Recession when I was proselytizing a bit, and there were communities that were saying, the way we're going to really thrive in this difficult economic climate is to get rid of everything and to cut our budgets. And one of the things they did is they cut everything that people, that made those communities places where people wanted to live. And so that was a big mistake for a lot of communities. Um, but, you know, I cite a couple of communities and I, and my apologies to those, uh, those folks, um, you know, who live in them. But one of the communities I, I highlight is Stratum. It's a wonderful community, beautiful, single family houses. But if you're a young person, Unless you want to buy a $600,000 house, you can't live in there. Yep. In addition, even if you plopped a bunch of rental housing in that community, there is no there there. There is no downtown. Um, so there would be no places for people, young people, to aggregate, to socialize, um, you know, the, the social amenities that are really important. So, uh, you know, there is a blueprint out there. A lot of what I have talked about over the last five or six years is try to highlight that to communities that, you know, everybody seems flummoxed. We can't change the demographics. Well, there are ways we can deal with it. Well, and Ivy, this is a great segue to um, the design of communities to uh, draw people in so that it's not just saying, you know, and there are some communities that, you know, when I look at that chart that we were talking about earlier, that have um, uh, relatively low percentages of young people, but relatively high percentages of rental properties. Now, they may be sort of on the front end of a renaissance of sorts because they may be able to make a pitch for cheaper housing than a lot of other places because of the supply and demand. 
Um, but they either haven't made that pitch yet or it hasn't worked, perhaps in part because they're not places that have yet invested enough to become attractive for the kind of people that would want to jump into those communities. And we have examples of those that, that are very exciting. New Market, you mentioned earlier, when, when Eric Chinberg got involved, um, that really uh, excited people into looking at it. The community, uh, local government made investments in water and wastewater, everything from sidewalk, you name it, they did it. And it's really begun to draw people and grow uh, the population and all the benefits that become uh, start happening with that. So one of the things this goes to is being planful, urban design, town planning. Um, Ivy, what are some examples of communities around the state that um, are kind of blueprints of how more of us should be thinking as uh, communities and as a state? Okay, so here's the problem. Um, when we look at, when we're trying to figure out what kind of design do we need for our towns to make them desirable, the best model is that we look at places that are already successful. And so what we see is we see housing downtown. Um, and there's a bunch of ways you can do it. You can do it by rehabbing mill buildings. You can do it by encouraging second and third floor residential, which is another complicated thing, but not impossible. Because once you have a cadre of people living in a place, particularly a walkable place, then that cadre of people can support a coffee shop or they can support a couple of bars or a decent restaurant. And, you know, it's, um, I think of it as like putting a heavy weight on a, on a soft mattress. Once you get that weight of people there, then stuff kind of rolls to the middle. And you get more things, you know, you get, maybe you get a florist and maybe you get another coffee shop. And it's really the question of having things close to one another and having the opportunity for lower cost startups for small businesses. And Jane Jacobs famously said that cities need old buildings because that's where new businesses start is in old buildings because the up, you know, the up is cheaper. You can start up a business cheaper in an old building. And it's cheaper to start up a building like that a business like that in an older building because you're, you're not going to be a Dunkin' Donuts mm. franchise with that big, that's a big investment, a Dunkin' Donuts franchise. A coffee shop, I have a friend who talks about uh, the one-butt business <laughs> where you have a business, it's Steve Muzon, and Steve talks about the one-butt mm. business where you have a shop that can be run by one person. You've got a coffee shop that can be run by one person. And, you know, once once that coffee shop gets popular, they're going to probably have to move next door to a, you know, a slightly larger space. But those smaller, less expensive places are really important for driving vitality in a downtown. The other thing that I was thinking about when Brian was talking about, you know, well, you know, some of these new apartments that get built in the old mill buildings, they're kind of expensive. But here's the thing. We have plenty of academic evidence now that adding market rate rentals to a supply chain changes things all the way down to those cheap, terrible apartments out by the highway. 
Um, the first study that I saw of this was done in Helsinki, where the Finns keep track of everything. And they could see that the addition of 500 market rate apartments in the core of the city actually drove change six months later in the neighborhoods that were considered to be in the bottom quintile economically. So I used <laughs> to tell that story and people would say, well, yeah, Helsinki. But here's the thing. Upjohn did the same and at the, I think the University of Michigan Michigan is where Upjohn Institute is. Anyway, they did the same analysis in the United States and got the same results. So when we add market rate apartments to a supply chain, we actually loosen everything up. Because, for example, as you know, I am a landlord. I have four apartments. Two of them are really swanky new apartments. And then I have two apartments in a building that I just bought that my children <laughs> refer to as the janky duplex. And the thing about the janky duplex is it's perfectly safe and nice. It's just not fancy. The people in my janky duplex might like to move to something a little nicer, but there is no somewhere for them to move. So when we build nicer apartments, people that are living someplace that feels a little marginal for them can move up. That way, their apartment, which is less swanky, is now available for someone who is maybe couch surfing. And so mm. we, need, we need new housing at all price points. And particularly, we need new rental housing at all price points. And it sounds like from what you said earlier, Brian, when we see a, uh, a limitation of people being able to go from rental to home ownership, it keeps them in that home, uh, that rather the rental market longer, and that has this right. downward pressure. People are willing to throw more money at a further and further downstream level right. rental unit, and it just exacerbates this problem. It, it absolutely does, and I will add one more complicating factor to the housing market. Um, over the last, well, five years and probably another five years in the future is that we're in a demographic period where a lot of younger people are starting households. So you've got a lot of people entering the likely rental market, plus you're keeping people who would naturally or during more normal uh, housing market times be exiting the rental market. So you're really compressing more people into the rental market. But Ivy makes a, a really good point, one that I've uh, tried to stress is that um, when I hear uh, a lot of discussion of the housing market, so much is focused in on uh, affordable housing and only building and only allowing affordable housing units. To me, that's making the perfect the enemy of the good. Um, you know, as Ivy points out, adding rental units, adding house, any housing units is going to take pressure off the housing market and take some pressure, allow some steam to, to go out of, of the market price um, for housing. So I'm a big believer that if we constrain development so much and say you can only build affordable units, only build low cost units, we're going to ultimately do uh, more damage to the to the to the housing market and our ability to solve this problem. One because it's going to make communities a lot less willing to add housing. So we can't do that. We can't put constraints on the building of housing um, and make communities less willing to accept any housing. I have an association with an organization 
it's loosely and not formal anymore, but I used to be more con- more involved, um, called the Incremental Development Alliance. And InkDev spends all their time teaching people how to become neighborhood developers in their own neighborhoods, how to make their own places better. And we talk a lot about brain damage, and we talk about uh, polluted by regulation, um, so, you know, you, you talk about brownfields and you can't, you know, you can't rebuild on a brownfield because it's, it's constrained by the regulatory environment and it's got pollution and it's a problem. We talk about polluted by regulatory environment. Things like, well, you can, you can build a multifamily, but you have to have four times as much land as you would have to have for a single family, even though the building you're building is the same size as a single family house. So one of the things that happens in in uh, jurisdictions is that they put all of these restrictions on and you know one of them is okay well you can do multifamily but it has to be workforce i can tell you i've run the numbers so workforce rental in the new in new hampshire and these are the feds numbers i did not make these up it is in my corner of new hampshire you have to be able to rent an apartment for twelve hundred and fifty dollars a month to be able to be considered affordable to for workforce. That's 60% of the area median income. So I think I told you on Friday morning when we were talking, Steve, that I the rule of thumb is for every dollar that I'm likely mm. to get in rent, I can't spend more than $100 creating that unit or I am an ex-developer. So back it up. If I am, you know, my goal is to rent at twelve fifty to someone making sixty percent of area median income. I can only spend one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars creating that unit. The only way that I can do that, if I'm really careful and good, is I can repurpose an existing building, which means now I'm working in a neighborhood with all of the headaches and brain damage that comes from working in a neighborhood where the jurisdiction hasn't made it straightforward and easy for me to do that. I've got two questions left before our time is over in this podcast. One is something I hear a lot about, about almost every topic. What has the pandemic done to both, not necessarily housing stock, although I did see a statistic about how housing completions are are even slower than housing starts because of the time, related to things you said at the outset, Brian, but also the way that people are rethinking, where are they going to work? What kind of housing do they need going forward? What is this doing, the pandemic doing to these topics? Well, it's had a pretty significant impact on New Hampshire's housing market, for one. Um, one of the things that has occurred in, during the pandemic is that there's been a desire for less density uh, among where people live. So we live in a region that is surrounded by relatively high density um, areas, the Boston metro area, the Hartford, New York City. Those are areas where we often uh, see individuals move from into New Hampshire. And what happened uh, in 2021 is that unlike the previous four or five years where we had seen net in-migration into New Hampshire of about anywhere from three to 5,000 individuals, more people moving into the state from other states and moving out, we saw 13,608 more individuals move into New Hampshire. And why is that? Well, one, the desire for less density. Cities became a 
a lot less attractive, if, particularly if you lived in a high-rise building where one person could take the elevator up to the 30th floor. Um, and we allowed more opportunities for remote work. So it's a wonderful opportunity for New Hampshire in terms of our demographics, because I've looked at the demographics of who has moved into New Hampshire, and it is moving younger. We're seeing a greater percentage. Now, all of northern New England benefited from this trend. Vermont, which had seen a decade of out-migration, net out-migration actually had in-migration. Maine had it. But when I looked at the difference between the states over the last five years, it's clear that New Hampshire is attracting more young people. Now, the thing is, it tends to be concentrated, concentrated in the seacoast area primarily. That's where most young people, and why? Because there's more opportunities and there's the amenities that they want to be near. Um, increasingly, this community, Manchester, is doing a better job of that. Um, you see it with their initiatives in terms of housing. But the, the pandemic has had a big impact, and of course, when we haven't built more housing units, the construction didn't pick up in response to that. So we've added a whole lot more people to a market that was already strained. And so now we have vacancy rates that are well below 1% when they should be 5% or higher, 7% to make the market more efficient. And the you're right, Fewer homes have been built because of the supply issues, supply chain issues. Um, and that's not something that is looking like it's going to turn around in the next few years. I think the housing issue is going to be one that is not amenable to a short-term fix. We're going to be dealing with it for a very long time. Um, but the more we understand and more communities understand what how the housing market influences their long-term futures, that's what I don't think a lot of communities understand. They do not understand that they put the viability of their communities for the next 50 years at risk if they don't address these housing issues. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And the thing that I would add is that not only do, do towns and cities have to understand that if they don't address the housing issue, they're going to have a problem for a long time in the future. I think they don't understand how maintaining their current development pattern, where everybody moves out of town onto a five acre or three acre parcel at the end of a cul-de-sac, I don't think they understand the economic implications of that. Uh, Joe Benicosi did a study for the New Hampshire Housing Finance Authority well, probably 18 months ago. Joe is a genius and he figured out a metric for figuring out what development patterns uh, raise taxes, provide more taxes, and which development patterns are a net drain on your town. Because as he says, the only thing that you have as a town is the land. So um, it costs $4.65 a running foot to salt, sand, plow, ditch, and mow a foot of road in New Hampshire every year. So when we encourage development out into the countryside, not only is it ecologically disastrous and doesn't really provide the kind of places people wanted, because remember we talked about how people want to be with other people, or at least most people do, so we're building all of these big houses out on these long driveway, essentially long driveways, which the towns are then obligated to maintain in perpetuity. We can't afford that. We cannot afford that. Which both of your answers, your responses kind of lead me to my final question. Um, you know, the question or the framing of this podcast overall was housing. How can we get enough of it? 
Um, we've spent a lot of time talking about why we do not have enough of it. Uh, certainly, states around the country are battling the, the same problem. Um, what can we reasonably do? Brian, you mentioned we're talking about generational length problems and solutions. Ivy, you more than about anybody I've, I know in the legislature tried to take it on head on in a very practical, data-driven, um, uh, imaginable kind of way. You could see practical, positive implication uh, for your bill. And yet there's bipartisan agreement. Something needs to be done, but also some bipartisan uh, opposition, a little NIMBY or other factors to doing something about it. So what practically can we do to address this question, given what you've described in this uh, podcast? Well, I do think that addressing our reactionary and exclusionary zoning is job number one, because we can't solve any of the other problems until we do that. Even if we suddenly had a new cadre of plumbers and electricians and carpenters and framers, which we desperately need, it wouldn't matter if you can still only build single-family houses. So I do think that the first thing that we have to do is we have to say not everyone wants to live in a single-family house. There is nothing morally superior about living in a single-family house. <laughs> so I was out in Wisconsin just the other day, and I uh, was talking about how you should allow ADUs everywhere, which I totally believe. I think you should allow two ADUs on every lot. And a woman came up to me afterwards and she said, well, I don't think people want renters in their house. And we talked a little and I suddenly, and I couldn't figure out what the issue was. And then later when I'm flying home, I'm thinking, oh my God, she said renters like it was cockroaches. Mm. And we have to remember that we were all renters, our kids are all renters, the people that serve our beer are renters. There's nothing morally superior about purchasing a house. We all, you know, we need more people in the demographic of being renters. And so we have to stop being afraid of the idea of small-scale rental units in existing neighborhoods with all of those things that we talked about that people want, walkability, et cetera. Brian, what do you think? I think one of the things we're going to have to do is to make it, we're going to have to rely on the self-interest of communities. And I think right now, communities don't understand the self-interest that they, that they have in allowing um, greater density in allowing more housing units. Um, and we haven't done a particularly good job of highlighting those communities who have been successful and whose demographic challenges, whose vibrancy of their downtowns have, has, has benefited from allowing more housing units, density and more housing units in the downtown area. I'm not a big fan of mandates, I'll tell you. So I do believe that once... There, there are communities that are desperate to change their fortunes, and I'm going to rely on them because I think that those communities are going to show that are going to show that eventually there are models that will not rely on a heavy hand of government to allow um, them to to prosper. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it in places like Summersworth, which has done a really good job. They've, you know, they've made those investments you talked about, Steve. Th those are the kinds of communities. We may see it in Franklin. You know, Franklin has been a community that has been resistant to a lot of things historically. Um, I'm looking at those communities to see 
if in fact this can their fortunes can be turned around without any mandates. I well, as the person who wrote that mandating bill, I'm going to push back a little. I, you know, this is the work that I do nationally, and we talk about this. The people that I talk to about this talk about it all the time. We would prefer to see local jurisdictions do this. The evidence, sadly, is against it, particularly the sort of nicer the community is, the less willing they are to continue this. I would never propose a bill at the state house that says, oh my gosh, you have to allow a 20-unit apartment building any place that you can cram it in there. That's bad planning. I am going to say we need to allow four units. Four units is a house-sized building. The Federal Home Mortgage Administration thinks that a fourplex is a house. You can get a beige mortgage for a fourplex. It's a house. I think that that's the place to start because I think that once we allow fourplexes, as long as they meet all of the local requirements, then we do break the dam that says, oh my God, all rental housing is bad, all renters are messy, and we don't want them. I, I do think that, that it's going to take something more than relying on the goodness, the kindness of strangers. It's not, it's not kindness, it's, <laughs> uh, it's self-interest. And who, and who cares if a bedroom community ages itself out of vibrancy? I personally don't care. I, I, care, do. about, I care about those communities that want to change their fortunes, and there are a lot of them. And I'll give you one example of a North Country community, Littleton. Littleton, I look at the demographics up there, that's one of the North Country communities that has an age, that their younger population has, has grown. So there are opportunities throughout the state, and it's largely because of the self-interest, because they recognize the benefits. And if bedroom communities wanna do whatever, fine, let them do it. It makes, it's no skin off my behind, if that's the case. And I don't think New Hampshire's worse off. It's when we allow and we make opportunities for those communities that want to change available, that will make a difference. Well, what I see is, I'm gonna, once again, what I have seen is I have seen more than one community start down the path of allowing more opportunity and have that allowance derailed. And not just the one that I'm from, but it's I've happens I've seen it other places as well. So I guess I think there are communities that need a push. Um, yes, I don't care particularly if a bedroom community with no downtown wants to you know to die on the vine. But I do care about communities where people would like to live, and I care about people who are in places. Um, I was able to turn my house into a three-family, but there are a lot of people who are living in a house that they would like to add an accessory dwelling unit or two or would like to convert their house, and they cannot because the local zoning doesn't allow it. And it's really hard to make those changes one community at a time. It's very hard. I mean, you and I talked about neighborhood defenders. The people who, every time that a housing proposal has to go to a public meeting, every time it goes, it gets smaller and more expensive. Every time. And we need to fix that problem. And that's a, that's a fix that may have to come from further up the food chain. I live in Dover, and I remember um, it was probably 15 years ago, there was a wine store located in the downtown. I said, 
wow, the demographics are cha- starting to change. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was pretty happy about that, by the way. Um, so, uh, so the, you know, the opportunity, Littleton is like a community, like a, unlike a lot of North Country communities, um, it, it wasn't frightened of that change. It wasn't frightened to see, um, you know, kind of a, a, a wave or a new wave of residents that maybe don't have the history of living in that area. So when I talk about opportunities, basically, uh, you know, it, 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 it sort of addresses what Ivy's talking about, is that, um, you know, there is a lot of nimbyism, there's a lot of fear of change. Well, that's a community that saw, even if they didn't do it consciously, at least allowed the opportunity for something different in their, in their community. So that's really what I'm talking about, opportunities. But I also would say, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of incentives. So I believe more in carrots than sticks. And I do think um, communities, you dangle enough money in front of communities, sometimes they change, and, or at least they take advantage of those incentives. And while New Hampshire does not do uh, provide a lot of uh, fiscal support to communities, there are ways in which we could boost that depending on the way they address their local building and zoning regulations. And so I'd be in favor of looking at those kinds of uh, incentives. One thing I would add, too, from experience, back in the day when I was mayor, this was about 15 years ago, the conversation was about incentivizing developers to move in a specific direction, knowing that we couldn't, at the local level, mandate certain things. In this case, it was not more housing. Uh, it was uh, more, uh, at the time, lead certifiable, environmentally friendly new construction. We sat down with a number of developers and we asked them, look, before we just throw some stuff into an ordinance, some carrots that end up being radishes, not carrots to them, what would actually incentivize you? Not promising we'll do it, but it'd be good to know. And the thing out of everything that ended up moving the ball and and ended up getting some lead certified building done was actually increasing floor area ratio if you met certain environmental uh, increased heightened standards. Um, and so a lot of folks, as I was mayor at the time, they I would try to explain why this FAR, floor area ratio, was actually the best tool we could throw in the toolbox. The eyes would glaze over and roll back. What the heck is that? And But it worked. And I think it started with going, let me, let me put my, shoe, my feet in the shoes of the people actually putting capital on the line. Um, and then what can we do within the constraints of local governance to kind of Ivy's struggles? Um, we are not a home rule state. So there are certain things that unless the legislature empowered us to do it, uh, we might be limited in some ways about what we could try. And that's something there. I think there's a lot of opportunity, uh, again, in a bipartisan way, it seems. And it worked. I think that that is one of the lessons out of all this. And it's part of what I think got us to want to do an episode today about this is there are so few things, policies, uh, areas uh, in our state and our country where there's legitimate bipartisan interest and in increasing heightened sensitivity to the problem, right? You can't solve a problem until you identify there is one. People see there's a problem now. And I, there's this exciting opportunity for bipartisan support and unfortunately sometimes bipartisan opposition to some solutions that might actually move the needle. Um, and I, I thought we had the right two people. Uh, when we thought about putting together a show. This is a, a great uh, conversation, and I'm glad you two are in the roles you are in because you're helping us try to move the ball forward. Uh, Brian Gottlob is the director 
of the Economic and Labor Market Information Bureau, a part of the New Hampshire Department of Employment Security. Brian, great to see you. Thanks for taking some time today. It was a pleasure, Steve. And uh, Representative Ivy Van remains one of my favorite state representatives <laughs> after this conversation from the great community that a lot of people would like to move to in Peterborough. Ivy, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for letting me come and talk about the thing I care about most of all. And I will leave you with one thing. If a community wants to make it possible, to make more housing, they should eliminate their parking requirements. It's all about the parking. Parking ruins everything. We could do a whole episode on parking. I'm telling you, we really could. Oh, totally we could. So be careful. We might be doing that. Again, thank you both very much. Uh Uh-huh. Bye-bye. This has been Granite State Matters podcast on housing. How can we get enough of it? We're moving to our summer schedule now, so our next episode will be in a month. We'll be investigating the complex relationship between civility, free speech, and the laws that try to control them. You can listen to Granite State Matters podcasts at our website, granitestatematters.org, or at your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening.